Hello and welcome to Inside Scoop Live. I'm Sherry Hoyt and I'm your host. My guest today is Melissa Muldoon. Melissa is the author of three novels set in Italy, Dreaming Sophia, Waking Isabella, and her latest, which we'll be talking about today, Eternally Artemisia. All three books tell the stories of American women in their journeys of self-discovery to find love, uncover hidden truths, and follow their destinies to shape a better future in Italy. Melissa is also the author of the Studentessa Mato website, where she promotes the study of Italian language and culture through her dual-language blog. Melissa also created Mata Italian Language Immersion Programs, which she co-leads with Italian schools in Italy. Through her website, she also offers opportunities to live and study in Italy through homestay programs. Melissa has a BA in Fine Arts, Art History, and European History from Knox College, a liberal arts college in Galesburg, Illinois, as well as a master's degree in Art History from the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana. She has also studied painting and art history in Florence. Melissa is an artist and designer and illustrated the cover art for all three of her books. She is also the managing director of Mata Press. For more information about Melissa Muldoon, visit her website at melissamuldoon.com. Hi, Melissa. Welcome back to Inside Scoop Live. Thank you, Sherry. It's great to be here. Yeah, I always look forward to talking with you. I'm a big fan of your work. So why don't you start by telling us about your latest novel, Eternally Artemisia? Well, I'm really excited about this new novel. It's called Eternally Artemisia. And like my first two, it is set in Italy and tells the story of a woman who is on a journey of self-discovery to find love, uncover hidden truths, and follow her destiny to shape a better future for herself. Mm. And my protagonist, her name is Maddie. She is a 40-year-old art therapist. And through art retreats she leads in Italy, she helps other women through the aftermath of physical violence and rape. But this is just one of the themes. The book is really complex, and it was a challenge to write, I must admit, because I also deal with the themes of sexual violence. This is what Maddie is, her her profession. She helps women through the aftermath of violence. Yeah. But this keeps her from believing in the power of love. And deep down inside, she maintains there can be love so poignant and profound that people who experience this deeply personal connection, they are destined to meet over and over again. And this feeling is further fueled by Maddie's childhood fantasies of time travel and all through her life, she wrestles with this peculiar feeling she's lived past lives. Mm -hmm. So I'm weaving together this very serious topic of sexual violence, but also with a bit of time travel that comes into this storyline. And as the story continues to unfold in a villa in Tuscany, just outside of Montepulciano, which is um, a little bit south of Florence, Maddie begins to connect with these previous existences and she discovers the loves of her life. She begins establishing a bond with Matteo Crociani, a nobleman from the court of Cosimo II, the Medici, who lived in Florence, as well as the 17th century artist, Artemisia Gentileschi. And Artemisia, in her uh, life, she, she was a, a real artist who painted in the 17th century, the Baroque age, and she was raped by her painting instructor, who was actually a friend of the family. Mm. She went through a trial. It was a difficult time for her. She was only 16, 17 years old. But this didn't waylay her. She went on to become one of the most prominent female, important artists of her generation, And still today, she's an influencer and a source of inspiration for many artists. And her talent and 
it's not only because of her talent, but just her perseverance to survive against great odds. Right. Uh, I think it's, it's the story to be told. Yeah, absolutely. I love the story so much. And like, I feel like, well, with all of your novels, there are so many different layers and I just love the way they all unfold. So how did you come up with the storyline for Eternally Artemisia? Well, as you know, I was here with you talking last year about my second novel, which is uh, called Waking Isabella, which dealt with Isabella de' Medici Mm -hmm. and a portrait of hers that goes missing. And she was strangled in her villa by her husband. And I really enjoyed the process of writing that story. So as I was concluding the final chapters of that and polishing the novels for publication, I knew I wanted to keep writing. And so I go to the gym every afternoon, and that's a good time to clear my head. Yeah. And on the way home, I was sitting there thinking, oh, you know, my this journey with Isabella is coming to an end. If I were to write a third novel, what would I write it about? And it just came to me, and I've always been fascinated by Artemisia's story. I'm an art historian. I studied art history in college and have a master's degree in art history. So as a young young woman, I remember being very struck by her story of the rape, her subsequent trial, and just what she did to overcome these all great odds in a male-dominated society and So I thought there's something there in that storyline. I wanted to communicate her story, but in a creative, fictional way, too. So the challenge in my writing is wanting to communicate real facts, Mm -hmm. but then have the liberty to weave in some fantasy or some fiction that elaborates and keeps the reader, you know, wanting to follow us on the journey to learn more about this real-life person. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the way that you incorporate all of the... Um, I almost feel like I get a history lesson without getting a history lesson um, because the way you deliver it. Yeah, no, but in a good way. Yeah, because you're, yeah, you deliver it through a story that makes it fun and engaging. It it, it takes, you know, my first draft, I always get back to my first reader is, oh my gosh, there's a lot of facts here. What can we do or what can you do? You know, so you're not spoon feeding the, the reader all this information. So then I'm, because I get all excited about the facts. And yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, okay. So and I always have to remind myself the first draft is the first draft and just to get your thoughts down as a writer. But then it, it really frees you up to go back and then take that information and work it into conversations and making that come across to the readers. Yeah. 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 And I also, I mean, I got a lot out of this book because it's so relevant to today's world. I couldn't help thinking about her struggle and what's gone on here recently with the Me Too movement and all that. And did that have any influence on how you were going to tell this story? Of course, of course. And that's one of the reasons as I was coming back from the gym that one day, sitting at a stoplight, trying to figure out what my next story would be. And I thought, this is a very fascinating story. This woman is fascinating, what she went on to do with her life, but just how relevant it was to today's what happening in the news media, what's happening, what's coming out in Hollywood and all these things. And I thought it doesn't matter how much yoga a woman does, how much, you know, weight she lifts, she is always going to be dominated physically by a man. And so this has been an ongoing problem since the biblical days. And I wanted to illustrate that. And that's part of the ongoing themes of my book. I start out in actually it arcs through time and it begins in a biblical scene and you have women being abused by 
men who are feeling authoritarian over them. Mm -hmm. And then I also take you into the 1930s. I take you into the 1600s. And I wanted it to be this reoccurring. There's really a lot of cyclical things that happen in my novel because we are time traveling. Yeah, right. So how did Artemisia work through her challenges? Another theme of my book is art therapy. And this is precisely how women can overcome through grief, through traumatic experiences. Today, we have now have the whole art therapy uh, mm-hmm. as a means of, of working through uh, these difficulties. And if you look back to Artemisia as one of the, the, the leaders of this kind of psychological practice, because she threw herself into her art. She was very passionate about painting to begin with from a very, very young age, and she was an apprentice to her father. But after this rape and trial, Agapino Tassi was found guilty of the crime of raping Artemisia, but he never served a day in court. Mm. So on the other hand, she, her life was in tatters. She was going to be sent off to a convent. Her, she was no longer fit to marry a man. She, her standing in society, she was just a ruined woman at that point. Right. But this didn't dissuade her. She went on to become this great artist, but because she threw herself into her painting and actually in her paintings, she painted herself over and over again in these um, images of strong women, Cleopatra, Judith, and in her specific painting of Judith and Holofernes, she paints herself as the woman who is decapitating the head of this Assyrian general who is actually, uh, looks very similar to her real-life rapist. So she's working through her pain and perhaps taking her revenge through her art. And during the 1970s, uh, modern feminist art historians brought this to light, saying she was the first feminist and she was really standing up for herself and this is that. But also, Artemisia, I think, was just creating strong women who were able to take control of their destinies, that they were not going to just lay down and let this happen to them. They were going to somehow uh, communicate that if you re-envision a biblical story in the past, if it was painted by the hand of a man, the woman might appear a lesser um, protagonist in the story. But Mm. Artemisia made the woman figure the most appealing and prominent figure. So in that way, she had her vengeance, we could say. (laughs) Right. And and I guess I also, I wanted to show through Artemisia that I, again, I draw a parallel that uh, you can let this kind of violence ruin your life or you can grow your life bigger so that you have all these other experiences and that does not deter you from going on to realizing and maximizing your full potential as a woman. Yeah. So what do you think Artemisia represents for all women? Well, I think she's an inspiration that you can move on beyond a tragic event in your life. If you find that thing that you are so passionate about in your life and you focus on that, you're unstoppable. And she did, and she rose like a phoenix from the flames, and she used her art to heal herself. And she moved to Florence. She eventually married a Florentine man, but it wasn't a real loving relationship. But she was able to still become quite a businesswoman. She was able to become a driving force in the Florentine society. She became a protege of Cosimo II, the Grand Duke of Tuscany. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of her best friends was Galileo. 
and he instructed her. <laughs> How many people can say that, huh? <laughs> I know, I know. It seems like, like, like I'm making this up. And people actually, when they first read the first draft, they're like, come on. <laughs> she knew Galileo. And I'm like, yeah, she yeah. did. And her talent was so great at the time. It was recognized in her own time that the Grand Duke of Tuscany made her the first in the elite all-male Florentine Art Academy. He admitted her. So she was the very first woman to be admitted to this all-male art academy. And she shattered the glass ceiling of the art world in her time during the 17th century. Right. So I think her story is one that shouldn't be forgotten. It's relevant even today. In my story, I wanted to bring her life alive for my readers to remind the world that some women, like some beautiful works of art, live on and will never be forgotten. Right, right. Now, you also have, and, and this is one thing I love about your stories, is that you have, I, I call them parallel protagonists, because I don't, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, so, because you feature an important historical figure from the Italian art world, and then an American woman who um, journeys to Italy on kind of like a self-discovery type mission. So, tell us a bit about your American protagonist in Eternally Artemisia. Maddie is dedicated to helping other women realize their full potential. She believes women are capable of achieving great things by believing in themselves and not listening to the little voices inside of them that tell them they aren't good enough and they're not capable of accomplishing something. She is a 40-year-old who has dedicated herself to helping women, you might say, to pushing her own life kind of aside. But um, her mantra has always been, women to take courage, as I was mentioning before, to take control of their destinies and discover that they are worthy of accomplishing anything they set out to do, and that's their superpower. And she's a determined woman who wants to stand up for herself and those she loves, and she leads by example to show other women they don't have to accept the status quo. It's just interesting to see how in different eras that she can assert this kind of confidence and be a trailblazer for other women. Right, right. So all of your stories are connected by a common theme, but they're standalone. So how do you describe your work? Is it a series, a trilogy? How do you describe your work when people ask about it? Yeah, I didn't really set out to write a trilogy. And as you said, in these three books, I have a strong uh, contemporary protagonist along with my historical character. And I was always trying to find creative ways to bring them together. And in this particular book, I have this um, time travel aspect. Because I did want to go back in time, and I did want Artemisia to tell her story in her own voice. First, I toyed with having it just be Artemisia, all about Artemisia. But I just couldn't, because they always say, write about what you know best. And what I know best is Italy and art. And I'm also always trying to explore my own personal connection with Italy and I, so why why do I feel so drawn to this country when I don't have any Italian heritage? I but I, I'm just I travel there frequently and I just feel so at home there. So in this particular book, uh, as in my first two, I'm trying to explain my own peculiar fascination with Italy mm. and this this hand that seems to be drawing me to Italy, like my protagonists Sophia, Nora, and Maddie. Right and. Sometimes I feel like I've been persuaded by Italian artists and Medici princesses and even seduced by Tuscan ghosts from the past who whisper into my ear to learn the language and return home to Italy over and again. And so like my character, sometimes I, maybe I've lived 
a couple of different lives <laughs> in the past, just like my character, Maddie. I know. Maybe you did. Do you ever it's get those peculiar yeah. feelings? Yeah. <laughs> I do. I do. That's what I'm saying. Each of my book. Yeah. I like with Sophia, I feel like when I look at a piece of artwork, I sometimes feel like the, the painting is speaking to me. And so in that book, I, you know, we have lots of conversations with characters within the paintings and with my second book, The Medici Princess. And I remember standing in her bedroom where she was murdered and just feeling that tingling sensation like she was somewhere yeah. around me. <laughs> and this whole idea when I do go to Italy and I just, I just sometimes feel like I've been here before or I've, it just feels so comfortable yeah, it's not that great of a stretch for me to, to envision this kind of story. Yeah. Now, as I said earlier, another element I love about your novels is how you incorporate the history of Italy into your stories through monumental events and historical figures. Um, but to do all that, it sounds like it requires a lot of research. Can you tell us a bit about your research process? Well, I start with my uh, storyline, and I do a lot of reading. Then I just go off and I start writing. And as I write, though, I'm continually doing more research because I get to a certain part and I'm like, I want the details to be authentic. So Mm -hmm. I want to know what kind of chairs they sat in. I want to know what kind of clothing they wore or I want to know what they ate for breakfast, for instance. There's a scene in Venice. What would they have eaten in the 17th century? (laughs) So, So then I go off and I start researching all this stuff and then I'm finding all this juicy details that I that I keep notes and notes and notes and then try to weave into my drafts as I go along and add more information just just make it a little more intriguing and it was especially interesting in this book because I wanted to show the difference in eras by the different clothing that they wore and how styles changed how women were very restricted with the corsets in the, in the 17th century and then things got a little bit more free and easy going. And my contemporary modern Maddie is running around in, in t-shirts and sometimes just her underwear and t-shirt. You know? Right, right. <laughs> so, so just kind of just shows this evolution of the character and also the evolution of we've been more and more emancipated in terms of clothing, but yet there's still certain things that have not changed. Even this, this, you know, rape and some of these sexual violence things still continue despite how emancipated and how forward thinking we think our society has become. Right. So what was the hardest scene to write in Eternally Artemisia? Well, I think as I mentioned, my first draft, I'm really going into quite a lot of detail and just because I think I'm just trying to get it out of my head and onto the paper. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I overload pages with too much information. And sometimes I, I realize that and I take some of that information and I try to insert it in a previous chapter or later on or have just a little offhanded comment. To me, I want to make it a natural the dialogues I want natural and light and a little bit easy going so that I can convey these details and feed the reader information without it seeming to be heavy handedly giving right. out this information. But you know, sometimes the most easy scenes to write are, are like when I started writing her a uh, trial scene and it just sort of kind of flows out of my head. Or even the scenes in the seventeenth century 
when I'm not trying to impart so much historical detail, just like the scene where she wakes up in the bedroom and what it would have been like to stand on the balcony looking out over the canal, and mm-hmm. it just comes out. So that's a key learning for me, just to sometimes go back and fill in that extra detail in the second Later. or third or fourth yeah. Breath. Yeah, yeah. yeah just but the same it. thing happened with Waking, Waking Isabella. Um, the scenes that start uh, during the war scenes, when you about midway through the book, I just started writing uh, the 1930s scenes, and it just seemed to just flow. And I've gotten a lot of feedback saying those were the most interesting <laughs> chapters. Oh, wow! So I had to let myself know that I got the information in my head and just let the story flow from what I have. And I spent a long time too going into the Me Too movement. And actually on this book, it was almost like two different books because I had spent about three more chapters with her art therapy retreats mm-hmm. in Tuscany. And I had a lot of backstory about all the women who were involved. There were like eight other women. And so I had little stories that I knew exactly who they were, what they did, what their abuse had been. And I had all this going on. And it just was too much. And that was kind of heartbreaking to have to cut that yeah. all down to maybe two chapters. I heard somewhere about, you know, character development. It's like when you create your characters, you're you're creating a lot of it's never going to make it into your story. You're creating it for you so you know how this character is going to react. So a lot of it doesn't yeah. make it into the story. No, but it is so true, and it's good to have somebody point it out to you, and the story does get much better, but you do need to have that in your head. In my process, I don't know how everybody else does it, but I have to start from page one and work all the way to the end, and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, okay, now I see how it's all going to end up, yeah. and then I start all over again, and I, I just begin again, and now it's like a roadmap. I've already blazed the trail, and I can get rid of things I know don't belong, and it's just like a revelation. It's like, I could have written this story now if I hadn't made it to the end and started over again. So, <laughs> yeah. Like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? And so, <laughs> and, and the last chapter, I must have rewritten, well, I had three totally different endings. So, yeah. Oh, wow. So that evolved. Yeah. yeah. So That's once great. you become, you've made friends with your characters, you know the story, you know where it's going, and you know the message you want to impart, you can kind of give yourself a little more creative license to let go and have kind of a unique finale. Yeah, yeah. Now, you're an artist, you're a writer, a designer, Italian language instructor. How do you express your passion for Italy through all of these different creative avenues? Well, in all my pursuits, from writing books, blogs, filming YouTube videos, even to my language groups that I lead in Italy to learn Italian, uh, my goal and my passion is to share with others the Italy I've come to know through all my adventures and my personal experiences living there. I want others to know the legends I discover when I go into churches and I discover something interesting about a patron saint or I learn something, you know, very a cultural curiosity and things that I just find interesting about the country. I want to communicate to others. So I like to paint a picture of Italy in words to share the taste, the smells and the sights that can be found in no other part of the world. And it's really spectacular. Very beautiful place to visit and to become involved in. It does sound magical. I lived through you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I want people to know the joy it feels like just walking down the street, the piazza, or strolling through multiple piano at night when you see the little boys playing soccer in the moonlight. So all these descriptions I add to my book, they're things that I've personally experienced. 
yeah. climbing up those hills to the top of these steep hill towns, what it feels like to go up those hills, what it's like to drink a cappuccino. The, the barista has made this beautiful little design in your coffee cup. And so I think that's what uh, lends a lot of authenticity also to my books is because everything in the book is based upon my personal experience. Yeah, absolutely. So when did you first realize you wanted to become a writer? That's a great question because I never really set out to be a writer. I've always been a creative person, um, expressing myself in various ways through music, painting, and writing. Um, When I was a young girl, I played the piano and decided I wanted to be an artist. I dabbled with writing, and definitely my mother was always encouraging me to write. She would pick up things I would you know, had she'd find on my desk and she'd be really intrigued and tell me that I should develop my ideas more. But I really hadn't entertained the thought of writing a novel until I started learning Italian seriously. And I began the Studentessa Mata blog, which means crazy student. And when I started learning Italian, I opened this blog to give me a reason to write in Italian every day to help me improve my language skills. And now the blog has turned eight years old. And so for the past eight years, almost every day or you know, frequently throughout the week, I post articles in Italian. And now I post them in a dual language now. So I post them in English and Italian. Wow. And mostly these are nonfiction stories. They're stories, you know, information that we were talking about previously about what it's like to walk into multiple Chiano or what you do in multiple Chiano or mm-hmm. wine tasting or cooking classes and nonfictional things. Then I started toying with the idea, wouldn't it be kind of fun to take all these anecdotes and turn them into some sort of fictional novel as another way of uh, reaching my readers. I had a large following and it was an intriguing idea to me. I toyed around with a lot of different ideas, and then I came up first with Dreaming Sophia, which was loosely autobiographical, you know, how I came to love the Italian language. Mm-hmm. And on, on my website, I was featuring books. I was a book reviewer for um, books that were set in Italy, and I sometimes would just finish the book and think, you know, it was good, but, you know, it wasn't thinking what would be the story I would write or how would I improve that book? I could write a book. What would it be about? And I had also come into contact with a lot of uh, inspirational women. Uh, Diane Hales and uh, Frances Mize actually got to meet her recently, um, author of Under the Tuscan Sun. Oh, really? And oh, wow. So, yeah, and I, I would do book designs. I, I'm a graphic designer, so I do book covers, and I would be doing these covers for these other artists. And so, you know, it just it was like the perfect storm, all these things came yeah. together, and I thank you. Let's let's just do this. And and at first, this little voice inside my head was telling me, you know, that's you know, you'll never do that. You can't write a novel. But then I'm like, <laughs> you're you're not a writer. And I looked at myself. And I'm looking at my blog, and I'm thinking all these articles I've written for eight years. Yes, I am a writer. Yeah. And so I shoot that little voice away, and I just began. And you just have to have a lot of perseverance, and you a good idea and just keep working at it. And now I have three books. So yeah, I'm glad you told that voice <laughs> to hush. <laughs> Thank you. I have to tell that voice a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's As normal though. Yeah. So what's next for you? Do you have another project in the works? Well, as with my second book, as I was finishing, I didn't want the experience to end. So the same has happened with Eternally Artemisia as I'm finishing up. I, I just really like the writing process. So 
I'm toying with some ideas right now, and I'm doing what I I do best. I'm doing historical fiction, and but this time I'm thinking these three books, Dreaming Sophia, Waking Isabella, and Eternally Artemisia, have my contemporary protagonists. And this time around, I'm thinking of re-envisioning all that so it's actually in one time frame. <laughs> so, oh, okay. I'm kind of breaking with that, so. Yeah, yeah nice. but again, it's going to be a strong woman, a strong, powerful story uh, that's inspirational and has to do with our history. Well, look Stay forward tuned. to it. Yeah, look forward to it. So, so just a couple more things I wanted to find out. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received about writing or about life in general? Well, I think the best advice I have ever received is to write without fear edit without mercy and it is so true (laughs) (laughs) I love that yeah and to go with that um, do you have any advice for aspiring authors maybe based on your own experience as I said writing is hard work and it requires a lot of dedication uh, to the craft and you just have to not give up (laughs) I think you have to start with a fairly unique idea but as I've talked to other writers and read other books I mean there's hardly a new idea under the sun, but it's the way you deliver it, the way you communicate it in your own words is what makes it entirely unique. Mm -hmm. And you have to be able to disassociate yourself from the work and critically review what you write and be open to other people's criticism and just be open to the whole idea that you can make it better and not, you know, when you get those first reader reviews for the first draft, which you know at the time you think it's just the most amazing thing since sliced bread, but then you reread it with, after reading their comments and you're like, oh, yeah, and then you get all you get all bummed out because you think it's the worst thing ever. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but how are you going to turn this around? But I always... I don't know, there's something about me, I I let it sit for a day or two, and then I'm just like, gosh darn, if I'm not going to figure this out, and I just start at page one again, using my roadmap, starting all over again, listening to comments or the feedback, and Mm -hmm. where this has gone off the rails a little bit too much, or where this is perfect, or where your relationships between the women are developing lovely, you know, what can you take and throw out, what can you say, what can you, how can you rework it so that it is keeping the reader engaged and you communicating your message. And I came across this quote from J.K. Rowling the other day, which I really liked. It says, you have to resign yourself to the fact that you will waste a lot of trees before writing anything you really like. And that's just the way it is. It's like learning an instrument. You've got to be prepared for hitting wrong notes occasionally or quite a lot. Right. And I love that analogy. For me, it's so true of writing a novel. It's like learning a new instrument. And right off the bat, you can't expect to play a Mozart sonata if you've yeah. never played the piano before, you know. And the same is true with a novel. You start with a big idea, and after the first flush of creative writing is over and you finish your first draft, the real work really begins then. And you start that editing, well, as I said, edit without mercy and you can then go on and rewrite it and then the fun starts over again you can start embellishing it with mm-hmm. other details and all of a sudden you go off and create this lovely little conversation that could never have been there because you it, it's just like so much information to corral and to get down on paper and during the rewrite you are composing and practicing over and over and over again that the, the keynotes of your symphony that make it rich and so melodic I love that. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that's great advice. Thank you. (laughs) Melissa, thank you so much for joining me again today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, and I, I really appreciate you sharing your work with us. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure speaking with you, too, and all of your listeners. Thank you for joining me today on Inside Scoop Live for my interview with Melissa Muldoon. For more information about Melissa, visit melissamuldoon.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews at InsideScoopLive.com.